You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast, and we're here in our inaugural recording. Uh, It's a podcast where I'm going to hopefully talk to you about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. It's a podcast on medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm joined here by Adam Obley. Adam is a graduate of the University of Kansas Medical School. He is a graduate of OHSU's Internal Medicine Residency Program, where you were the chief resident, were you not, Adam? That's true, 2012. 2012. And now you are faculty here in the Division of uh, General Internal Medicine. You divide your time between the VA, and you're also known for performing evidence reviews on medical topics. And uh, I brought you here for the inaugural episode. And just before we tape this podcast, I will tell you that somebody who works with me told me that she had been reading a lot about podcasts. And on the internet, they say, um, people recommend you should delete your first three episodes because they're going to be awful. (laughs) And that's the kind of vote of confidence I I brought you here for. That's terrific. This is the stuff that will end up on the cutting room floor. So before I ask you many questions... um, and obviously everyone will be a sincere question. Uh, I want to cover a few of the ground rules of this podcast for for the, the poor people who are had to listen to this. Um, so I'm your host, uh, Vinay Prasad. I'm uh, a hematologist-oncologist. I'm an associate professor at OHSU, which is Organ Health and Science Singular University. Uh, I'm a researcher. I teach, and I'm a physician. Um, I see patients with a variety of hematologic and oncologic uh, problems, um, and also very rarely... Um, and with the assistance of one of the chiefs, uh, we'll consider attending on the general medicine service. Um, and if I had to pick my favorite part of the job, I think it would be um, both working with patients and trainees, and ideally those times in medicine where we get to do both, get to spend time with patients and trainees on the same day. Um, those are the best days. It's not, unfortunately, debating on Twitter. That's, those are the worst <laughs> days. Uh, So what's the goal of this podcast? The goal is quite simple. We hope to set the record straight. And and the goal and the inspiration are a little bit intertwined, so let me tell you about it since I've I've brought you here, so you have to suffer through what I have to say. Um, So what's the immediate inspiration for this podcast is I have uh, become a huge fan of a law podcast. That podcast is called First Mondays. And First Mondays is a podcast about the Supreme Court, um, and it has nothing to do with medicine. And it's a podcast that really doesn't, I don't think, cater for a general audience. I think it caters for the technical audience. But if you're an interested general person and you listen to it enough, I think you can kind of catch up and and follow along. And I really like that. Um, And one of the things that one of the hosts was saying uh, was on one of the episodes he was asked, like, you know, why do you really like the law? And he said, I really like the law because it's one of those few places in society where we take seriously um, the challenge of ideas where people with better ideas can truly prevail over people with poorer ideas, irrespective of your political ideology or your philosophies. If you have better ideas in the situation, you may win. Um, And so that got me thinking, like, what do I really like about medicine, which is something I love? And I guess um, I like that, that there is something about the record that can be set straight. So what do I mean by that? I think there's so many walks of life where um, there truly are disagreements and there may not be an objective right answer. And I think in medicine that so much of it is in the gray and reasonable people can have reasonable disagreements. But the one thing that separates us from so many other fields is that for some things, not everything, there is in fact a right answer. There's a better way to interpret the data. Um, There's a better way to study this. 
Um, I was in a debate on Twitter recently, and somebody said, well, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, and I'm entitled to mine. And I thought, actually, no, you're not. <laughs> actually, you know, you can be wrong about some things. Um, and I can be wrong about some things. And I hope that uh, we try to show each other why we're wrong. And I think in medicine, because we have large-scale, robust clinical studies, we can actually clarify who is right and who is wrong. All right. So I don't want to bore you with the other housekeeping. I'll talk about that later, maybe record that when you're not here. I want to jump in. <clears throat> so I brought you here, Adam. Uh, you're an expert in medicine. You're an expert in evidence. Um, let's talk about this situation in medicine where you're a physician. You have a patient in front of you. You've made the diagnosis. We're moved past that. Um, the patient has some, pro some natural history that you kind of know about. Um, you want to prescribe a treatment. Um, why do you need evidence to prescribe that treatment? That's my question for you. No, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, reflecting on your introduction, I would say many of the same things. And I think that it's um, the, the tradition of empiricism and uh, application of the scientific method and sort of refinement through experimentation and data that appeals to me as one of the, uh, the main um, interests in medicine as well. Um, but I think to answer your question, um, why would I look for data in trying to choose a treatment for the patient? Um, I, I think the answer is essentially because I want greater certainty um, that I'm doing the right thing, um, that I'm choosing the most appropriate treatment, uh, the one that ultimately is most consistent with the patient's goals and preferences. Um, and I can't do that um, without having information on the effectiveness of the treatment. So if the patient has, let's say, knee pain, you're going to look for what type of study design would you, would you seek out? Good question. So if we're talking about treatments for knee pain, um, then I would certainly be looking at randomized controlled trials to try to ascertain um, whether or not the treatment is effective. And knee pain turns out to be, as you know, an interesting example, um, given the long history of probably questionable um, surgical procedures, which when they've finally been studied in a sham controlled fashion, proved to be no better than placebo. I see. So you're cutting ahead for me. So a randomized trial is one of these silly things in medicine where we take a bunch of people who have the condition that you want to treat and you randomly allocate them to the treatment you're interested in or something that's almost the same thing except leaving out what's thought to be the critical step. And you've alluded to the difference, I think, between trials of medications where the control arm is often a placebo pill, especially for an outcome that's a subjective outcome like knee pain, which is something the patient is reporting, um, uh, and the importance of placebo-controlled pill trials. And then when it comes to a drug or a device, sorry, a device or surgery that's performed with the goal of alleviating knee pain, you seem to suggest that the appropriate control should be a placebo surgery, where you deceive the control arm into having, into believing they've had this surgery. That's right. I think um, certainly the data from the studies of knee arthroscopy for patients with uh, meniscal injuries or degenerative changes in their knees um, support that idea. Um, the idea that uh, if you randomly assign patients with similar knee problems to a strategy in which they're treated with a real arthroscopy or in which they go to the operating room or put under anesthesia and have a procedure in which 
basically there's a small incision made mm-hmm. and then a Band-Aid put over that incision, but no arthroscopy is performed, um, that those patients, when they look at pain outcomes and also functional outcomes, um, do exactly the same or in some cases better than the patients who receive the actual arthroscopic procedure. I see. So I think that emphasizes, and, and this has been observed across different types of placebo-controlled studies, um, that the degree, the degree to which the placebo is interventional affects the degree of the placebo effect. And indeed, surgical placebos, procedural placebos appear to be more effective than medical placebos. Is this why a bottle of wine that costs more objectively tastes better than a bottle that costs less? <laughs> that may well be true. Isn't that the case? Because if it costs a lot, it's got to taste good. That's what I was always taught. Um, so here's my follow-up question to that. And this is a step back, because I, I have a few more questions about sham control trials. But why isn't it sufficient to say, you know what, I'm a scientist, I've studied this problem, I understand the molecular biology, that's something that you, Adam, would have to look up in a book, but I actually Absolutely. understand that. And I understand the molecular biology, and this therapy, it really should work, and if you understand molecular biology, and you really knew it, you would believe that too. So why is that not sufficient? I have a good hypothesis, this will help, and it will help. Sure. No, I think the examples are, are legion where we had sound pathophysiologic reasoning to make us believe that a treatment would be effective. But unfortunately, in many of those cases, when it's eventually studied, that turns out not to be the case. And probably the, the quintessential example of that would have been the trend in the probably late 80s to early 90s of performing high-dose chemotherapy with autologous stem cell rescue for patients with breast cancer the pathophysiology made sense. We just need to be able to give higher and higher doses of chemotherapy, potentially lethal doses of chemotherapy, in order to control the breast cancer, and then we'll rescue people's bone marrow with the transplant. When it was finally studied in a randomized controlled fashion, it turned out that we were harming patients with that treatment, and I killing patients they with were that perhaps treatment. Maybe, there were more than one, maybe six or seven That's right. such trials. In fact, so many so that Cochrane recently re-reviewed the evidence. So that just shows you very conclusion. clearly that the randomized trials are all wrong, Adam, and the basic science, the science, the cancer biology was always right. Um, but here's my question. By suggesting that pathophysiology is inadequate um, to be a fail-safe in knowing whether therapies work, does that mean you are anti-science? Aren't you anti-science by saying that? Because you're against the scientists who have spent years to study it and tell you that that should have worked. No, as I alluded to earlier, I think um, probably the people that I look up to most and in our profession and people who I think are widely regarded as great scientists are also part of the empirical tradition. And I, I think that's what good. we're defending here. Good, good um, answer, good answer. So I think, yeah, you and I will agree that we both dearly respect our laboratory colleagues. We think they're vital to drive innovation. Without them, you know, we would have missed out on so many effective therapies. Absolutely. But at the same time, we recognize that their work alone is not an assurance that therapies work. So why do you hate innovation at a Mobley? <laughs> I, I don't hate innovation at all. I think um, I find it to be some of the most exciting um, parts of the work that we do. Um, but I also believe firmly that um, in order to do right by our patients and in order to um, create uh, conditions in which we can have a just distribution of healthcare resources in this country, um, that we have to insist on more than good ideas. We have to insist on evidence that treatment works. But you would agree that if we didn't insist on evidence that the treatment works and we allowed um, people a very low bar for market entry in this country, you would agree that profits should go up, if nothing else? Well, no, I think they certainly would. And um, we have undoubtedly seen people make that argument that, uh, that essentially the role of the FDA should be to ensure only the safety of new medications, not that they need to be effective, merely their safety. 
in that case, as long as outcomes are not worse by a non-inferiority trial and profits go up, isn't that a net positive? You get the profit <laughs> that and the outcomes know it. Yeah, that depends yeah. on your perspective. All right. So, so you're not opposed to profits, uh, I'm Com- not comrade. A- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not opposed to uh, reasonable profits. Of course not, because as uh, I think you know, of course, I'll agree with you there. Um, uh, and, uh, y- you know, profits drive innovation to some degree. It encourages uh, investment. But the role of the regulatory agency is to align profits with interventions that actually make people better off. And that's, that's the only thing that proponents of evidence have called for repeatedly. Um, well, but there are other people who call for things that that call themselves proponents of evidence, and I don't know if they really are. Um, which brings me to a really recent bill, the 21st Century Cures Act, which uh, in a lot of ways um, lowered the bar for regulatory approval, um, in particularly in the class of um, regenerative medica- regenerative stem cell therapy and, and, and this use of uh, real-world data as opposed to clinical trials. Um, and... Uh, and uh, some colorful Twitter personality tweeted this. Um, I wonder if, if you'd read this to the, to the listening audience. <laughs> uh, OMG, I just saw a copy of the 22nd Century Miracles Act aimed to modernize the FDA and renew, I mean double the user fees. There is a new pathway for approval that will allow companies to submit negative trials and explain what would have made them positive. Finally, innovation. Yes, so a new regulatory pathway in the 22nd century is at the Miracles Act. This is 21st century cures, but the next century's miracles. And here's what it says. It would have worked if only. This is a new designation that's been proposed for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's beyond the breakthrough. It would have worked if only. Manufacturers submit negative pivotal trial data, and they say, what changes might have made this trial positive? If five out of 10 experts agree, and two out of three patient groups, then the drug is approved. Hmm. And of course, all experts are only experts and patients are only patient groups if funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, that is the, the, quick, uh, the, the quick proposal. Do you think it's a good idea? I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs> Why uh, is it a terrible idea? <laughs> um, you know, the trial was so close to being positive and it would have been positive if, you know, something was different about the control arm. Why isn't that good enough for, for drug approval? That's a great question. Um, I think we've seen numerous examples of essentially negative trials where what comes out afterwards is spin more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, an attempt to spin the trial, as you've mentioned, um, into a positive one when the essential results of the trial were negative. Um, and I think my general response to that would be, those can be hypothesis generating, um, but then once you have your new hypothesis on the basis of that trial, go out and do the next trial. And validate and the it. hypothesis. Validate it. I see. That's what a pedantic scientist might say, but that's not what a profit-seeking innovator would say. But uh, that's the difference, I think, between people who fundamentally care about what benefits patients and people who care about other things and and use the other as a guise. Um, But I, of course, agree with you. That's the right answer. I'm just playing. I'm playing a little playing a little character. This is my this is my Stephen Colbert character. I I would add too, of course, that there's a tradition of. sort of absurd post hoc analyses applied to trials, which um, I think was probably best exemplified by a a post hoc subgroup analysis of um, one of the early trials of aspirin MI. I think ISIS, Um, right. ISIS, exactly, Uh Um, which uh, uh, analyzed patients by their uh, zodiac sign and found that only two, I think it was Aries and Capricorn, had a benefit from aspirin and MI, and the rest of the people were out of luck. I see. Uh, so seems implausible. Um, that zodiac but also signs. emphasizes potentially the risk uh-huh. of these uh, 
these numerous post-hoc analyses that are done. Well, I think that it's time to revisit the zodiac signs in the Maybe modern so. era. Maybe you we know, have I think been misdiagnosing patients this This is not your time. grandfather's FDA, and perhaps subgroup analysis by zodiac sign is a possible path forward for, for drug approval. Um, we, we jest, of course, but uh, you never know. Actually, these days you never know. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about surrogate endpoints. Um, uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago. Uh, don't worry, no one's read. No, <laughs> no, some people may have read it. I don't know, accidentally. Um, but my co-author, um, Adam Sifu, uh, who I wrote the book with, is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, and he likes to say that a surrogate endpoint is an endpoint that patients didn't know matter until a doctor told them it did. And I, I really like that quote because I really think it does capture what a surrogate endpoint is. Um, and I think a surrogate endpoint has three characteristics. It's a stand-in. Um, it substitutes for what you actually care about, which is living longer or living better. There's no one who cares about anything else, really. Um, it's measured more easily or sooner. Um, often many people exaggerate just how much more easily or sooner it's measured, but be that as it may, uh, that's some unpublished work we have. Um, but it's measured more easily or sooner. And finally, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off because they're not always faithful. They don't always go the way you want. So my question for you is, as a clinician, who benefits from the widespread use and acceptance of surrogate endpoints? Is it patients? Is it doctors? Or is it the for-profit companies who use them for regulatory approval? Uh, I, my answer here will probably have a little bit of nuance. Um, I think probably the I'm best. Sorry, this podcast does not accept nuance. No, of course <laughs> no. We, this is why we have the podcast beyond the hundred, the two hundred eighty characters. Yeah, so put the nuance in it. You know, I think there are situations where where surrogate endpoints are valid, um, and to cite a commonly used example and one that I think is legitimate um, is the use of hemoglobin A one C in trials of new diabetic medications, because the clinical outcomes, um, with with the exception of things like hypoglycemia, are some of the most more acute outcomes. Um, are going to be 10 or 15 years down the line, and because there's a robust body of evidence that makes the link between glycemic control um, and um, uh, microvascular complications, at least, um, I tend to accept that as a surrogate outcome. That is many steps far removed um, from some of the surrogates that are being used in trials these days, um, which have a much more tenuous connection to patient outcomes. Um, so I think it has to be, I, I like the definition um, that you've provided, um, and I think that's accurate. And I think for the most part, if you go to patients and ask them what matters and that we should be doing that more often as we're designing studies, um, I, I think that many of the new surrogate outcomes that have been proposed really don't matter to patients. And no patient on their own um, would say that they care about the amount of dystrophin that's expressed in muscle tissue, for instance. On a Western blood. Correct. Which, of course, we all know the reference levels by heart. <laughs> um, I, 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 I like what you're saying. I mean, I think that, um, you know, and, and I'm very critical of surrogate endpoints, but I do think they do have a role, particularly for illnesses that are extremely dire, for which there really are no suitable alternatives. Um, I think it is okay to allow drugs on the market based on surrogates, ideally surrogates that have been validated. Right. And ideally, there's post-marketing follow-up to know Absolutely. that these drugs, like these diabetes drugs, um, years later, they actually do improve the outcomes we care about, like cardiovascular disease and, 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 and actually the hard outcomes of how many people have to go on dialysis or how many people right. have neuropathy that is crippling. And we just don't see that. And so 
you know, I might push back on you a little bit on diabetes because I think we just have a glut of, of approvals. But I agree with your principle that, you know, it's not something you can just say all or nothing, um, but it is something that has to be used uh, cautiously and and with the goal, I think, of patients and not with the goal of just expediting approvals, which I'm not agreed. I'm not certain that that's the case. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about about well you brought up sham control trials so I'll move to my this little thing I've got written about sham control trials um, before he was commissioner of the US Food and Drug Administration Dr. Gottlieb took a bit of a different view of sham control trials this is what he writes um, and this is from the Wall Street Journal um, but for several years the FDA has clamped down on these approaches I think referring to non-inferiority trials against uh, medicines for so I, I should give the, the listener some background um, th- this is about devices um, mechanical interventions um, to improve uh, bias-prone endpoints, such as subjective symptoms or, in this case, blood pressure. Um, the reason I call blood pressure a bias-prone endpoint is that the doctor has been given a great gift, which is the button on the blood pressure machine that cycles the cuff. And if the doctor has an idea about whether or not somebody received an intervention or the patient does, um, you can cherry pick the result that you write down in clinical trials. And uh, Daryl Francis, uh, um, the the PI of Orbita, uh, more than anyone has really sort of had some wonderful explanations of this phenomenon. Um, so here Dr. Gottlieb is talking about renal artery denervation, which was a mechanical procedure that was done um, to ablate the, uh, the nervous uh, the, the nerves that supply the kidney, and was thought to lower blood pressure. And the FDA actually demanded that the manufacturer perform trials where the control arm um, was a sham procedure, where patients thought they had it done, and doctors thought it was done upon the patient, but they did not, in fact, have it done. And so he writes this. The FDA has clapped down on other approaches in favor of sham surgeries, which it sees as statistically scrupulous and free from bias. The high blood pressure device, for example, is already available in Europe, where regulators accepted traditional or based approved it based on traditional studies. The FDA disregarded those results in favor of the newer and larger trial using a sham. Preliminary results from the sham study suggested that the device might not deliver the hoped-for benefits. While some people think the problem wasn't with the device, but more with the way the procedure was designed in that trial, the negative results are already emboldening proponents of sham studies. Sham procedures could be defensible in in certain narrow cases, for example, when a minimally invasive, very low-risk device is used to affect symptoms that are subjective and hard to measure. One example is devices aimed at treating pain. Another is when a surgery is already underway and the sham might be an experimental step that the surgeon foregoes in some patients. Sorry, I I can't (laughs) even follow the last paragraph. Um, So I failed on the last paragraph. I I didn't understand it. But I think the gist of this article is that he's critical of these sham studies. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that you put your finger on one of the key issues here, which is not... um, it's not just the patient-reported outcomes and the subjective patient-reported outcomes yeah. which are prone to bias. Right. Um, and that's why when we blind, we're also ideally blinding clinicians who are involved in the study as well. Um, as you point out, the blood pressure cuff is just a tool. It can be run as many times until the answer that they seek is found. Um, but I think, you know, in another sort of classic example of this, um, in many cardiology studies, for instance, revascularization, which is essentially a subjective decision in some cases mm-hmm. when it's non-urgent, um, is an outcome. And that is subject to bias from the clinicians if they're aware of someone's allocation in the treatment scheme. Yeah, that's a great example. So I think that um, 
when you have devices that clearly improve all-cause mortality, there are few of us who will quibble. Right. Agreed. Agreed. But when the when what drives the endpoint are endpoints that are susceptible to your knowledge of whether or not prior therapies and your belief in those therapies, those are the endpoints you really worry about. Absolutely. And the only way to get around that is to convince yourself or, or have the trial be blinded in such a way you did not know which arm they were assigned to. Um, I wanted to, to ask you a this thorny issue. Experts. Um, I think you and I will agree that um, so much of medicine is in the gray, um, that even though we are fortunate that unlike our colleagues in many other professions, we do have large-scale randomized trials to advise us on many clinical situations, there are many situations in which we don't have large-scale <laughs> randomized trials, and we have evidence that requires judgment, um, requires um, uh, some level of synthesis across different sources. And in those situations, we often rely upon the guidance of experts. Um, these are people who really focus on that disease, have made it their pastime for many years. Many of them may also dabble or have more than dabble in the laboratory science of mm -hmm. those conditions. Um, the problem is these experts are often conflicted. And by conflicted, I don't mean they have strong beliefs. I mean that they are receiving money to their personal bank account, not for their research enterprise, a distinction that's often lost, I think, to their personal bank account for consulting or lecturing about the products of certain manufacturers. Um, engaging in such relationships, I think, creates the potential for bias. Uh, and that's a potential that's been shown in empirical studies to correlate with more favorable views of products. Absolutely. Is it problematic? Yes, um, without a doubt. Um, and there have been efforts to, to quantify this. Um, in fact, Cochrane has uh, recently updated a review um, of studies that were attempting to quantify the impact of industry um, influence and industry funding um, in trials. And indeed, the conclusions are not just that industry-sponsored um, arrangements, industry-sponsored trials, are more likely to find positive conclusions. They're also more likely to downplay the negative conclusions or the harms um, in, in the studies. So I think there's a, there is a, um, a potential pitfall in all industry-funded research. Certainly in industry-funded research. And, and what do you think about the CME activities that are run by panels of doctors who have often received tens of thousands of dollars in payments from the makers of products discussed in those CME activities? Uh, well, I think that uh, in most cases, manufacturers and industry would not be making these payments if they didn't believe it was going to be beneficial. You don't think all these doctors are involved in the development of these products, as I often hear? <laughs> I think it's unlikely, but I do right. often hear that. No, the, no. the other thing I often hear is that— They're involved in the marketing at the very In least. the marketing. The other thing I often hear is, like, why are you opposed to uh, collaboration with the industry? And I, I guess I want to say that no one is opposed to collaboration with the industry. Are you opposed to it, Adam? No. No, we, I think you, we would encourage it. Um, but I don't, it doesn't follow from in my mind that if you collaborate with the industry, you must walk away with an envelope with money in it. Uh, in fact, there are academics who have published many industry-sponsored trials who do have a policy of not accepting money from the industry. Um, personally, they still right. can often engage in collaborations through their university, and I don't think anyone has ever faulted that. Uh, it has to do with this next degree. And then the one thing people tell me is that, you know, um, well, they deserve that money. I mean, they're working with this company. They're giving their time and blood and sweat and tears to do that. 
Um, but part of me wants to say that isn't that part of their job as a trialist uh, and as an academic uh, leader uh, to work with the industry and shepherd drugs? Do you need an extra payment from the company? For instance, part of our job is to work with medical students and researchers. And uh, Adam, how many times have a, a medical student offered you a $5,000 honorarium for your time? I've rarely been offered a, offered a cup of coffee. <laughs> rarely, rarely even been offered a cup of coffee. And if so, you had to take it black. You weren't even offered cream or sugar. That's right. Right. No. So we're, we're, we clearly do things in our job as professors um, that uh, we assume is part of the aegis of the job, and you're not paid extra to do it. Uh, and yet for this one activity, when you work with companies, people believe that it is acceptable to profit handsomely, uh, sometimes even more than their actual salary. But I think you know we can go on and on about it, and I will in this podcast, and at some point I'll explain my conflict of interest rules for this podcast, uh, which is uh, not disclosure, but rather uh, recusal by me of the guest. Uh, so that's, the, that's my podcast rule, <laughs> um, and I will enforce it as I see fit. Um, but uh, what I do want to draw your attention to is, um, and uh, please don't read what's blacked out because I want to protect the privacy um, for whatever reason. Um, uh, this is a quote where I noticed um, uh, a trialist was recently online getting a lot of pushback about a paper of this trialist. And this trialist um, uh, has many financial ties, uh, is often arguably deeply conflicted. Um, and the trialist uh, um, may not see that as problematic. Um, but as the trialist is getting pushback uh, about the paper, the trialist says this to the other person. Will you read that to us? Sorry you don't like our paper. The reviewers, including stats, all thought the statistical methods for this continuous variable were appropriate. I hope your opinions are yours and do not reflect your appointment as a competitor. Oh, as a blank, uh, as the job title for the competitor company. Ah, very good. Okay, so um, what I think is ironic here is that we do recognize it. Even people engaging in the problem recognize it and use it to harpoon someone else. That's right. Right. So... I don't know what's the word to use in such situations, but I believe hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is hypocrisy the one that comes to mind. Hypocrisy is the word. Yeah, because we do recognize it. It's a natural human bias. It's very difficult uh, to take money from companies and really come out and punch them in the gut when their data legitimately is poor and not worthy of changing practice. Um, so I think conflict of interest is a, is a tough part and it's what makes medicine so tough. Um, let's take a pause here. All right, I'm back with Dr. Adam Obley. He's a, a assistant professor of uh, general internal medicine at OHSU. Uh, divides his time between the VA and doing evidence-based reviews. He's an expert in evidence. He's an evidence expert. And as I always like to say, evidence-based medicine people forget, but it is actually the true basic science of medicine, is evidence-based medicine. It's not biology or biochemistry. It's the appraisal of evidence to guide clinical decisions. That's just my opinion, but I will foist it upon Adam. I, I agree with that opinion, and I think it's probably opinion. the most woefully undertaught subject in medical schools. It is undertaught, and largely through historical accident. And hopefully on future episodes, I will skewer the Krebs cycle, because as you know, <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, that I really hate the Krebs cycle. Okay, so here's what I want to talk to you about now, and um, I'm not sure when I'm going to splice this in into the audio, but I want to talk to you about um, next-generation sequencing, broad 
Next generation sequencing, of course, is a method to perform genetic sequencing. Broad, I think, referring to sequencing of like 100 or more genes or 300 right. genes, 324 as the case of F1CDX or Foundation Medicine Assay, or even broader sequencing. We've seen people trying to push for the whole exome. Um, this is a new strategy that's being deployed often in cancer patients with a variety of tumor types, be it lung or prostate or breast or colon or ovarian, et cetera, um, who have exhausted or maybe not exhausted but um, um, uh, do not feel as if uh, traditional um, treatments are adequate. Uh, and this is a this is a strategy that's being widely pursued. And as you know, recently re uh, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services offered to reimburse this service uh, through a CMS decision. Um, it has a lot of fans. I think we'll agree. Uh, there's not many people who who speak critically about it, um, but it has a few critics. And unfortunately, I'm one of those critics. Um, uh, but I think we need to. I, I mean, I want to clarify what exactly I criticize here. Um, I'm not a critic of NGS saying that like you shouldn't explore this as a research hypothesis. You should um, smash every NGS uh, <laughs> sequencing machine. Um, I am noticing the baseball bat right behind you. <laughs> that's true. I do have a ba uh, that, and I would like to uh, thank the University of Louisville who had me <laughs> to give grand rounds and and provided me a baseball bat. Um, uh, which I do frequently swing around the office uh, when I think about this topic. <laughs> but but uh, I don't plan on smashing the NGS machines. I think it is something that's, like many other things, uh, worth studying in research settings. But I think the, 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 the debate on NGS is not, is it bad or is it good? It's, has it proven its worth for cancer patients? And if it hasn't, who should be funding its continued use. Should it be cancer patients out of their pocket? Should it be insurers? Or should it be the companies that profit from the results of that testing? Like, you know, is it is it like a drug in development where the company should be paying for the studies? I think that's the debate. Who should pay for it? Is the data ready for prime time? Should it be scaled up or should it be tested clinically? Um, no one hates it or loves it. I think that's that's the wrong argument. Right. Um, so You've reviewed the NGS uh, in, in, in broad tumor types. And again, here we also have to draw the distinction. We're not talking about the use of selected genomic tests, such as the EGFR Correct. testing in lung cancer, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, or the use of extended spectrum RAS testing in colon cancer for cetuximab decisions. You know, there's a few tests in certain cancers that have paired or FDA-approved drugs that uh, have clearly shown benefit for people with or without those mutations. Uh, no one disputes that. The question is, should patients with cancers that have failed multiple lines of therapy have 324 genes sent and get a report back that says, consider trying drug XYZ off-label? And these drugs are often $100,000 therapies with real toxicity, and the number of times they've been given to a patient with that mutation and that cancer, often you simply cannot find that answer, and right. you have no idea what happened to those patients. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. You've studied the evidence base for this. And you've looked for something called clinical utility, um, not analytical validity. What does clinical utility mean, and why should that be what you study? So in thinking about genetic testing in particular, we sort of look at evidence on a hierarchy, whereas analytic validity is at the bottom. Um, analytic validity is really the ability of a reliable test result to be produced. Um, that is, that if we were to run the specimen multiple times, um, measuring for the same sort of thing, um, that the test results would be reliable. Um, this is really a question about how good is the technology at detecting what it's supposed to detect. The next question, uh, the next level of the hierarchy is really clinical, um, 
is clinical validity. Um, and clinical validity is uh, asking the question, what is the relationship between the findings and observed outcomes? Um, and that is can establish that a test may have some usefulness. But ultimately what we're looking for, and I think that um, when we do evidence reviews for public payers, um, I think what they're looking for is evidence that the use of the test actually changes outcomes for patients. Not just that there's a relationship between the findings and what the observed outcomes have been in the past, but that when the test is applied that it changes management decisions and ultimately that those changes in management decisions made on the basis of the test produce better outcomes for patients. So is it fair to say that when you reviewed NGS in the broad scale use, including F1CDX, um, your report was pretty thin. It was a flimsy packet uh, of studies of clinical utility. That's correct. There's very little, I, I should start by saying that there's very little direct evidence that deals with these broad NGS tests. Um, and what little evidence there is, what little direct evidence there is, is actually mainly negative. Um, the SHIVA study was the only randomized controlled trial that we identified in our search. Um, and it did take a randomized approach. It randomized patients to treatment, patients with advanced malignancies um, of different types to be treated on the basis of their broad spectrum NGS results or some sort of standard of care where those results weren't known. Um, and by and large, the outcomes were similar between the two groups. So and and critics may, may rightly say something like, look, SHIVA study, you pick the wrong pathways, you pick the wrong drugs, there's only three arms, I want more arms, I want right. different drugs. But, but I guess we might say to those critics that, look, um, the SHIVA study has shown a randomized trial is feasible. And, Absolutely. And like any negative randomized trial, you can't go to the FDA and submit this would have, it would have worked if only, which the pathway designation, unfortunately for the audience, the 22nd Century Miracles Act, <laughs> um, where the it would have worked if only designation has not yet passed. And as long as it hasn't passed, the burden historically on anyone selling any product in the healthcare space is to take what you've learned from the negative study, fix it, and run a positive study. Exactly. And I think that's exactly right. Um, if nothing else, and there may be valid criticisms of the way that the SHIVA trial was conducted and sort of the hierarchical approach that they used to treating mutations, all that said, it means that you can design and carry out in relatively short order and with a small number of patients um, a trial which could, um, if you address those concerns, um, demonstrate the utility of this technology. Now, to that end, uh, have you had a chance to look at the paper by Carolyn Presley and colleagues in JAMA? I have. And what did you think overall? So I think the main contribution here is that it um, highlights how this test is being used in real-world practice. I see. Um, it's subject to all of the same limitations that we would apply to any retrospective cohort study. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, it has the benefit of being you know, a fairly broad-based look about how this test is actually being applied and used in a community oncology setting. And this was actually a few years back because like many uh, you know, observational studies, you actually, you actually have to go back Backwards. into the history. Yeah, right. You have to go back into history to see. And uh, yet the authors found that you know, a sizable percent of patients with non-small cell lung cancer who saw the doctor uh, had large-scale uh, genomic screening That's right. uh, between January 1st, 2011 and July 31st, 2016. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that the routine testing arm had tests for EGFR and ALK, which Correct. were two validated targets for, for the duration of the study period. Um, somebody online said that was unfair. Um, you, can't, you can't just pick two validated targets for the control arm. Uh, but to that I would say, actually, no, that's r this is the right way to study the question. Because that's right. you want to know if, 
how would you put it? The incremental testing adds value. That's right. And I think, uh, you know, the results, uh, it was a relatively small number of patients who received the broad spectrum NGS. But among those, um, for patients who had mutation, 85% um, had no actionable mutations identified in that group. And then of the 15% that did, 10% of those were EGFR and ALK mutations that would have been detected in the standard, standard of care treatment strategy. Um, in any case, and that left only 5% of the mutations, targetable mutations, um, that were identified by NGS. But apparently, the identification of those mutations didn't improve outcomes for those patients. Uh, and to make that claim, you're drawing upon the propensity score analysis. Correct. Right. And so propensity score, of course, is a technique of observational literature that seeks to uh, find a comparable group to the group in whom the therapies were delivered, in whom the intervention was done, which is here whole um, exome, or sorry, uh, broad genetic panel. Correct. Um, what you want to do is you want to find a comparable, comparable group in the group of people that did not have the broad genomic That's panel. Right. Ideally, it would in a propensity match analysis, you're looking to find a group that would have had the same propensity to receive the testing as the group that did receive the testing. And interestingly, if you just compare in the whole group blood, broad genomic sequencing to the routine, um, routine testing, there is a benefit, but it vanishes in the propensity score matching. Correct. So what does that tell you about the types of people in whom broad-based genomic sequencing is run? Are they the average person in this data set? <laughs> it would appear not to be the case. It would appear not to be the case. Because if they were the average person, then the routine arm would not be made better Correct. by the use of the propensity score technique, right? Um, I'm going to talk about this more, I think, in future episodes. But I think, you know, you and I will agree, this is not the final study on the topic. No, uh, I certainly hope not. I think this is, as, as you've written before, um, this is an area which in which trials could easily be designed and conducted within the course of just a couple of years to but demonstrate that, the utility of this study. But that's what I, that's what I struggle with, which is, um, I have been saying that. And uh, I don't, uh, I don't hear a lot of people echoing that call, <laughs> and 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 that's what I wonder about. Um, I wonder about that. Why is the motivation to do this study, which I think is fairly simple, and in fact, I've no, I think it's fairly simple because I performed the power calculation. We know that between perhaps 100 to 250,000 people in this country have already undergone broad uh, genomic sequencing for solid tumors, uh, solid and hematologic tumors. Um, a, a very simple power calculation based on retrospective data from the University of California San Diego group would suggest you could answer the question if broad-based genomic sequencing benefits all cancer patients with something like a couple thousand people. And it wouldn't even take that long, perhaps a year and a year and a half. And with the interest and enthusiasm for this, one could imagine a trial like that could accrue very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, and yet, um, and yet, we don't have people running that trial. So why are all the leading experts not running the trial and rather deploying the therapy? So that's a great question. Um, and I think I would respond with a, a question to you, which is, um, if your technology on the basis of we will permit it if your if your technology on the basis of lesser evidence or flimsier evidence has already been guaranteed coverage in the largest public purchasing program in the United States Medicare um, through the use of this parallel pathway between the FDA and CMS what incentive do you have to run the trial if you already have enough market access 
Oh, I see. What Why you're do you saying. need more proof? I see. And in fact, one might argue that by running the trial, you can only shoot yourself in the foot. Correct. I see. Well, I want you to read something. Uh, oh, well, actually, no. This is, I was gonna. I was gonna keep forcing you to read it, but I'll, I'll, read, it, I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you. Um, and this is something that Vincent Raj Kumar, uh, who is a, a very esteemed uh, professor at the University of, uh, at the Mayo Clinic, uh, myeloma expert. Um, a very thoughtful researcher. Uh, this is something he tweeted out um, just on August 13th at 8.50 a.m., which is today. Wow, so this is hot off the press. This is a hot take. Um, this is what Dr. Raj Kumar writes. A few days ago, somebody told me that a well-designed trial to find out if a new treatment for cancer really works was not feasible because experts were already promoting this new four-drug combo in CME talks and that my endeavor was futile. Okay, never mind this four-drug combo is massively expensive. Never mind that the trials done so far and those in planning are biased to the point where the result is meaningless and already predetermined, i.e. by, you know, exposing people to the same drugs over and over and expect and comparing them to novel drugs where, of course, novel is going to be to the same drug over and over. Um, first, since it's hard to get funding to do it, I'm back to Vincent now. That was my, I shouldn't have even interrupted him. Um, first, since it's hard to get funding to do a real strategic trial, most trials in oncology are pharmaceutical, are pharma funded. They often have a design with, quote, hardwired bias, as I call them, um, where the new drug simply cannot fail. Second, off-label use is the norm in oncology. So all we need is a few phase two trials and a few experts touting these exciting results in CME meetings to change practice well before any real evidence comes in on the effectiveness or the necessity of a uber expensive intervention. Third, there is more money to be made giving more expensive chemo by all parties, so there's little resistance. In fact, to the contrary, new is always better is the mantra, what can we do? First. We need to convince Congress of the need to put in a lot more money into the NCI or academic institutions funding strategic, all caps, randomized clinical trials. Second, we need to ease regulations to make these trials less expensive and less cumbersome to do. Third, we need to be careful in what we say at CM in CME meetings. Every word counts. Every word is influential. Four, remember the McNamara fallacy. Just because something is hard to do doesn't mean that it's not important or that we should give up. Finally, we need critical thinkers and people who know how to interpret clinical trials to speak up and point out when mistakes and erroneous conclusions are being made. I'm impressed with the Twitter community in this regard. It's a powerful voice. No, I think that's very well stated. Uh, I find one of the most wearisome arguments that I hear over and over again is that a trial of this subject will not, cannot, should not be performed. And within the last month, there has been a randomized placebo-controlled trial of epinephrine in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If we can do that study, we can do the other studies. Right. I always like to say that uh, the cries that a study cannot be performed are usually the loudest right before it opens to recruitment. Uh, because I think it's a disingenuous thing, and I think it often reflects fear by the people who say that the trial will be negative, which is a legitimate fear because the trial is often negative. Uh, I won't take up any more of your time. Uh, thank you for being here. We could talk about this paper more and in depth, but I think uh, we've hit the high points and no one podcast can cover everything. So thank you, Adam. Thank you. Will you ever return to the podcast? The final question. I'd be delighted. Oh, thank you. And this concludes plenary session. Uh, you've been listening to a new podcast on medicine, oncology, and health policy. 
Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Kiana Klossner for her help putting together today's program. I'd like to thank Audrey Tran and Ian Staley for their work with the introductory music. And I'd like to thank my guest today, Adam Obley. And I hope you tune in for future episodes. You're too kind to these diabetes drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be happy to discuss some of the other flaws. <laughs>